Hi, listeners. Before we introduce you to our 12th guest, Mary Coleman, we have some big news to share. Slate's Panoply Network has picked us up as one of their featured podcasts. We're thrilled to be part of the Panoply family and excited to reach more listeners like you. Also, this episode's featured music maker is Emily Hope Price, who, along with Jocelyn McKenzie and Jeremy Lloyd Styles, make up Pearl and the Beard. You'll hear their music throughout the episode, and be sure to stick around for the end. Emily has a few pearls of wisdom to share. All right, let's meet Mary. For me, it's story breakthroughs, where we'll be hitting our heads against a wall on a story problem. We try all these different ways of solving it, and they all just kind of fall flat, and you get really discouraged. And then someone says something that triggers unlocking that. What I love about Pixar is that you don't know where it's going to come from, but we're very collaborative, and you break through. And the funny thing is, that solution may not even end up on the screen X years later, but it got you over the hump. And it's the collective energy of that. Nobody had to go sit alone and solve it. We had a group of people to hash it out together and get to that breakthrough. You are listening to She Does, a series that features women working in media, all forms of media. We wanted to know how these women arrived at where they are today. So we asked and found out. I thought you might like to know too. I'm Sarah Ginsberg. And I'm Elaine Sheldon. And today, we'd like you to meet Mary Coleman, Senior Development Executive at Disney's Pixar Animation Studios. She works with directors at the very inception of their story ideas. She helps them articulate their vision, prepare their pitches, matches them with writers, and gives feedback on outlines, treatments, and script drafts. She's worked on films that you've most likely heard of, if not seen, like Up, Brave, and Monsters University. The Pixar seed was planted in the late 80s by Ed Catmull, John Lasseter, Alvy Ray Smith, and the late Steve Jobs. And they've done well, charting unexplored territory with technology and talent, establishing that signature look that we all know. But it's those heartfelt stories that have allowed them to stand the test of time. And stories that defy age. Pixar has had a hand in shattering that common misconception that animation is just for kids. The medium doesn't matter, it's the story. When I'm watching our movies, I don't even think of it as animation. I just think of those characters in that world. You saved the day again, Woody. There's a moment where Mr. Potato Head comes out and all of his parts are rearranged. And the kids laugh at the visual joke that he has, you know, a a shoe coming out of his head. The adults laugh because he says, look, I'm a Picasso. I'm Picasso! And I really love that we make movies for for us, for adults. We make movies that we want to see. It's, it's going to be kid-friendly, but it's going to have the depth and sophistication that appeals to adults. Mary grew up in San Diego, and while many might think, oh, San Diego, beaches, great Mexican food, Mary thinks grandma. And as you know, we're big grandma enthusiasts here at She Does, so we were especially taken by Mary's close relationship with her grandma, Gertrude. My introduction to the creative world was through my grandmother who loved theater. Let's go dancing. Her husband wasn't interested in it at all, so early on I became her theater date you know, from kindergarten on. Okay. 
The pair were subscribers at the Old Globe Theater in San Diego, so Mary was aware and influenced by Shakespeare from an early age. Many tenders of his affection to me. Mm, tender yourself more dearly. Sometimes even we would take the train to L.A. or all the way up to San Francisco to see theater. Nothing else is built the same. I'm mildly dyslexic, not excitingly, but enough that I'm not a big reader, which is funny because I hire writers and I read a lot of scripts, but it meant that my grandmother read aloud to me a lot. Leave your coat, don't forget your hand, we're going to Singapore. That was very formative for me, the finding pictures in my mind while she read. The things that she read to me were so eclectic. She read all of Edith Hamilton's mythology anthologies, so I knew all the Greek myths, um, Dick Francis thriller novels to me, the whole Merlin series to me. But then she would randomly decide to read Jaws aloud to me, although I found out later she deleted all the expletives. She was smart enough that she could read fluidly without my even noticing that she was dropping out all the swear words. Do you see any similarity between yourself and the woman she was at all? Yes. Um, some of my favorite parts of myself in terms of being passionate about literature and language and teaching. She was a history teacher and a wonderful teacher. And then some of the parts that I like least, like being hypercritical um, and being quick to judge. Those are qualities of hers that I also inherited. But I miss her. I have a picture of her on my nightstand, and I think about her all the time. And in fact, when we have a movie coming out that I know she would love, like the one we have coming up, Inside Out, is an, it's an amazing movie. It's already my favorite Pixar movie. And th there are times when I stop and think, oh, I wish Gertrude were here. Mary continued to nurture her creative side, but it wasn't always a success. My first creative endeavors were disastrous because I thought that the only way to be creative was to be on stage. I didn't really understand that there's so many different roles. So I tried in just high school level um, and maybe early college acting, and I was in a modern dance group, and I was just not a very good actor and definitely not a good dancer, but I moved into directing theater and choreographing dance, and I found my role behind the scenes. The part I really loved was working with playwrights on developing their plays. I actually didn't love production. And to be a good director, you have to love production. And it, the fun ended for me when we sort of locked the understanding of the play and the subtext and the interactions of the actors and started focusing on the more external things that bring it all together. How do I get there with these old feet? Mary attended Amherst College in Massachusetts, where she earned a BA in English. And after graduating, she received the Watson Foundation Fellowship. It was her ticket to travel all over Europe, to see theater like she had never seen before. She returned to the States, full of ambition and hope, exhilarated by the performances she saw overseas. And she enrolled in a program at the American Repertory Theater, or ART, in Cambridge, Mass. And it was there that she began to understand the role she could play. 
an early mentor of mine is a woman named Ann Bogart, brilliant woman. She's the one who taught me the expression and the whole idea of something called dramaturgy. Dramaturgy is a separate practice from playwriting and directing. It's working with a script, or in the case of classics, it can mean adapting the script to a modern context. It started in, in Germany with Goethe a very long time ago, and Europe still has, most theaters have a full-time staff dramaturg, but America only had a handful of them, and through Anne I got to meet a couple of them because she recognized, and this is what a great mentor can do for you, she recognized there was a, a job that existed that satisfied my skill set. So Mary trained as a dramaturg at ART with Anne and a handful of other skilled professionals. But when I finished my graduate work there, there were just no jobs in it. So once again, I was back to having to kind of fake it as a director in order to have a job in the theater. Anne Bogart was so inspiring to Mary that she left ART and followed her to the University of California, San Diego, where Anne was an artist in residence. Mary got her MFA in directing at UCSD and then moved to San Francisco to work for the Magic Theater, a prominent theater in the city dedicated to cultivating new work by new playwrights. She was there for seven years, starting as an unpaid intern and climbing the ladder to finally reach associate artistic director. She was in the middle of it all, well-connected, directing world premieres. And Mary loved those early months in the lifespan of a production, developing ideas and concepts and workshopping the plays. But everything that followed, even at this higher level, Mary really wasn't enjoying. Yet she put her head down and stuck with it because she thought she couldn't make it as a straight-up dramaturg. I was defeated too early when I found out that there was only a small handful of individuals making a living doing it in America. I let that just make me think, oh, well, then I guess I can't be that. So I have to learn to be a director and fake it. And what I wish I had done instead was find a theater. The magic probably wasn't the right place for that. But instead of interning for a year for free Xeroxing scripts, if I'm going to work for free, at least do what I love and do it with a small company and maybe convince them that as they grow, they need a dramaturg. Can you talk a little bit more about this idea of faking it? Men will fake it till they make it, and women tend to say, well, I have to wait till I'm ready. I won't say that I was faking it till I make it because I didn't feel like I made it as a director. I never had that production where I felt like I broke through. But I certainly was willing to raise my hand and say, I should direct that play, and willing to put myself out there and try. Um, at a certain point, though, if you're only faking it and you don't get the payoff of making it, you will become dissatisfied. But as a way to get started, yeah, you kind of have to fake it. So let's say you fake it, and then maybe you make it. But what happens if you make it to a place and realize it's not really where you should be? I knew I loved the theater. I loved that feeling of this is live, this is real, this is happening. So I had a really high bar for what good theater looked like. And as a director, I was just competent. I wasn't great. And I knew the difference. And as I said, I'm hypercritical. There was never one show that I felt completely proud of. I always watched my own opening nights or even closing nights thinking, oh, I should have done that differently and I wish I'd changed that and mm, I don't really like that. And 
I was unhappy, and yet I had I had chosen San Francisco as my place to live as a grown-up. I had targeted the Magic Theater and pestered them into letting me be the intern when they didn't really need one. I'd worked my way up in the theater that was the theater of my dreams. All they did was new plays and work with playwrights. So it was this weird moment. I was in my, gosh, I guess early 30s. There was this moment of, I have everything I said I wanted and I'm really not happy. And part of it was my work was good but not great. And everyone was really, you know, very supportive. My, my boss, the local critics, it wasn't that people were telling me it was bad, it's that I knew the difference. But I didn't know how to find a place to do the thing I loved, which was working on developing text. potential shine through, and her way with text is exactly what got her noticed. One of the early founders of Pixar, Rob Cook, happened to be a subscriber at the Magic Theater. He read a program note that I wrote about how much I loved the front end of developing plays, and he knew that his good friend Ed Catmull, the founder of Pixar, wanted a completely different style development department for this company. He didn't want the Hollywood style, which is very business-oriented. So he had the instinct to tell Ed about me, and they recruited me to come and interview. But because it's Pixar, it was a three-month-long interview process with 13 people. Even though Mary was recruited, she was still up against 230 other applicants. And they didn't even start conducting interviews until several writing samples were submitted. It was rigorous. In fact, I hadn't worked that hard probably since grad school. I had to write a critique of The Truman Show which I happen to love that movie. Then I had to write what they call coverage, which is describing a script in progress and kind of whether you think it's something that would be worth producing or not. Today, Pixar's campus is in Emeryville, California, near Oakland. But Mary was recruited in the late 90s, when the studio was up in Point Richmond, in this weird little office park near a plastic factory and oil refineries. It's safe to say Pixar didn't quite have that grandeur that it does now. I wasn't intimidated, I was completely enthralled. When I first got the call from the person who was a subscriber at my theater, and he mentioned that he wanted me to come and meet and talk about working at this company, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I said, oh, I don't really like cartoons. And he said, you know, why don't you just go rent our movies? At that time they had Toy Story and A Bug's Life. And this is long ago enough that I went and got the VHS tapes. And I came home and watched them and thought, you know, I'll just check it out. Nothing to lose. And I was blown away. Blown away by the storytelling. The animation looked cool to me, but I, it, that wasn't what grabbed me. It was the writing and the storytelling. So then I called him back and completely changed my tune. Like, yes, I'd be very interested. My first interview was with the founder, Ed Catmull. It was a little distracting because through the window in his office, there were people fencing on the hillside on the grass behind him. And I finally had to say, excuse me, what is that? And he said, oh, it's the Pixar Fencing Club. And I thought, wow, I think I need to work here. 
Not that I'm going to fence, but just the idea that a company had a fencing club and that they'd made this amazing movie. And he is an incredible human being. And having my first interview with him, I was just completely sold. And then the funny thing was, then I had three months more of interviews and kind of wondering, will I get this job? What do you think they were looking for? That's a good question. It's funny because I said that the the part of myself that I wrestle with that I inherited from Gertrude is being so critical. But after they hired me, when I asked them, why did you choose me? Because they interviewed a lot of people. And they said, we liked that you were so opinionated. got my dream job, just never in the medium that I would have imagined. But they are so careful about who they bring in because they're looking for lifers, people who want to spend their career at Pixar. The Pixar process, in simple terms, can be broken down like this. The time between pitch to second draft is typically a year, but sometimes can spill into two years. And the next three years are a mixed bag of real screenings, lighting, and animation tests, and building the computer models. There's only one year, year five, spent on full production. And Mary, she's right where she wants to be. You could even say she's a dramaturg for Pixar. I am not creating content, but what I love about my job is that I'm eliciting story material from the directors and artists, and then I'm the yenta. I match the director with the right writer. It's all story, it's all text, and then I hand it off and it heads into production. And that's just one component of Mary's job. She's constantly shifting gears. Her process begins when a director pitches three ideas to see which one might move forward. Then Mary works with a team of three, the director who originates the idea, the writer they are paired with, and the head of story who will eventually lead the team of story artists to draw the movie. Because yes, everything is drawn before a computer is even touched. I will work with that trio, giving them creative feedback, and they will write many, many outlines and then many, many treatments. And they'll write internal rough drafts before there's even a what's called a, you know, a first draft. So there's so many versions, and I'm still a painfully slow reader. I'm still mildly dyslexic, but I think it actually, in terms of reading scripts, it makes you stop and hear every line and hear the different voices. So if it's a two-hour movie, it's going to take me two hours to read that script. It wasn't until I'd worked here for a few years that I found out that a Hollywood development exec will read 10 to 15 scripts a week. It's crazy how much they're expected to read. I'm a very, very slow reader, but I do retain it really well because I have, as I said, I have to say every, everything out loud in my head. I can't skim, I'm incapable of skimming. But I think it's served me well in this particular role. Pixar prides themselves on taking the time and the steps to tell a good, solid story. They're willing to put in those months and years of work. A director might stay a full year or up to two going from the initial idea through getting to a draft of the script that's ready to go into what we call reels. And reels are where the storyboard artists sketch out the movie. It's a rough sketch that's spliced together and you can see the whole movie in this hand-drawn rough version. We watch it, we critique it, we tear it apart, 
we start over, and sometimes we completely reboot the idea. Sometimes we know that there's a core of it that we like, or we love the ending, but we have to rethink everything to get to that, to earn that ending. And we are willing to throw it away and start over, over and over and over. What I took from live performance is being able to make a decision in the moment and commit to it and go for it. So when it's live, when it's theater, it's not going to be the same every night. And you have to be really nimble and very responsive. You have to be live in the moment responding. Now, our movies are very masterfully, carefully crafted in every moment. But the creation of them involves a ton of improv of people being ready to say, wow, I never thought of it that way. I'm willing to pivot now and try something totally different. Think of Pixar as a beehive, a big team with lots of moving parts working in collaboration. They're all working for the same goal, for that queen bee. Yes, queen. Yes, queen. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. At Pixar, the queen bee is the story, which typically originates from one person, the director. It can be a metaphor. The audience may never know how personal it is, but when I'm working with the director's as they're thinking about which I, what kind of ideas do I want to pitch, we always start with coming from a really personal place, like what matters to you, what are some challenges you've faced, what are the relationships for you that are the most fraught or have had the most healing. For example, Finding Nemo, Andrew Stanton was a young father at the time that he conceived of that movie, and it's the spark of it was him taking a walk with his son to the park one day, and he hadn't had a lot of time with his son because he'd been working on a bug's life. And he was constantly correcting and reining in and be careful, don't touch that, don't climb that. And he caught himself in the moment and realized, wow, I'm not being present with my son and enjoying our time together because I'm so busy corralling him. Well, that was the spark for Marlon and Nemo's relationship. And with any of our movies, you can trace it back to something very personal to the director. If you put one fin on that boat, are you listening to me? Don't touch the boat. Nemo! And if you think about it, these directors are going to work on this one story for five years. So you better love it, and it better mean something to you. And also, that can be your true north. The story will go through many giant changes, and the plot will change every single time you do a new set of reels. But if it comes from a deeply personal place, then you can always come back to, wait, what was that feeling I was first going for? What is the thing that is resonant for me that I want to resonate with the audience? And that can guide all of your choices. Is there any story or character, type of character or topic that you're hoping Pixar will explore in the future? female characters that aren't princesses, but we're already doing that, I'm happy to say. And and I I love Brave. I'm proud of Brave. And she was certainly different from any princess I'd ever seen before, but I'm happy that the lead character in Inside Out is a young female that's not a princess. So, Riley. 
Really? How was the first day of school? Fine, I guess. Inside Out takes us inside the mind, the headquarters, of an 11-year-old girl as she copes with her family moving from Minnesota to San Francisco. I'm Joy. This is sadness. That's anger. What? This is disgust. Uh, and that's fear. Ah! We're Riley's emotions. She has to leave behind all the things she loves. Her friends, her home, her hockey team. And naturally, she's not happy about this. The story is based on an original idea by Pete Doctor, who had similar experiences, both as a child moving from Minnesota to Denmark because of his father's work, and as a parent of an 11-year-old. I want us to have such a broad range of stories, and that's why we really are really committed to diversity here. Not only in terms of getting more gender balance in our studio, but also age diversity, ethnic diversity, perspective diversity. And because Steve Jobs was one of our founders, he always had a really strong philosophy that you don't let people tell you what they think they need, you show them a new possibility. He was, he always got ahead of it and wowed people with the possibilities of something they never would have thought to ask for. If you only give people what they're asking for, you won't have exciting leaps. So you've been here for 16? 16 years. Do you feel like you're still learning? Every day. One of my favorite things about Pixar, it's more than a perk, it's deeply ingrained in our culture, is something called Pixar University. I took a sculpture class, I was terrible at it, but I had an incredible moment where there was a model and I was working on my sculpture and I was doing really good detail work on the kneecap of my figure. (laughs) And this sculpture teacher who's from Berkeley here took me by the shoulders, pulled me back, and said, now just take a look. That knee is beautiful, but when you have to redo the whole leg to get the proportion right, you will have wasted all that time. That was a metaphor for me for some things that were happening at the same moment in story development, where we were polishing these little moments in our scenes, but we had to step back and throw away the whole scene. Mary does a lot for Pixar, but as we're learning, Pixar has done a lot for Mary too. Like we said, it's a mutually beneficial situation. For example, back in 2001, Mary scored tickets through Pixar to a Peter Gabriel concert. And Andrew Stanton took two of them and he was going to bring his neighbor who loved Peter Gabriel. So he shows up with this guy that from the moment I saw him I was really struck and I would not date someone at work, ever. So I thought, oh, Andrew Stanton's neighbor's really hot. So we started talking and we're flirting and I had literally never seen him at Pixar. There's 1,400 people and we're in two very different parts of the company. And then about 20 minutes into flirting, he said something about working at Pixar and I thought, no, no, but it was too late. I was already smitten and so we fell in love at a Peter Gabriel concert. Mary's husband was an animator who started during the original Toy Story days. He worked at Pixar for 17 years before he left to be a stay-at-home dad. He also teaches animation at California College of Arts. Now I grew up, I've working great-grandmother, working grandma, working mother, so it never occurred to me that I wouldn't work, but I'm grateful to him that he's chosen to be home with our two kids, and it is part of what allows me to be here. 
But when we would go to our premieres together, when we'd have the, the rap party for our movies, we would sit together and he would squeeze my hand anytime one of his shots came on the screen. And that was exciting to be able to think, oh, he animated that. And that'll be fun for our kids. It already is as, you know, they're getting old enough to watch films that we can say, Papa did that one. Lost in the survival. It's interesting at Pixar, the majority of our producers are women. We have a lot of powerful women running the show. On the creative side, it's director-wise, it's still all men. So for example, in the story department, there are 50 people and five of them are women. Not a great ratio, but part of that has to do with who a generation ago was training in animation. And it was the comic book boys. It wasn't something that girls even thought of going into. When Mary first joined Pixar in 1999, there were about 400 employees. And while there were already strong women in production, it was without a doubt overwhelmingly male. But the ratio has gotten better. And we're in an exciting time right now in this field because CalArts in Valencia, California, which is one of the primary training grounds for any form of animation, for the first time they now have a class that is more women than men. So in terms of the pool we're drawing from, we now legitimately have a representative pool of men and women. When I started, the applicants were all, all men. So it's shifting. And Mary isn't sitting back and watching the shift. She's jumped right in and helped it happen. She organizes panels, one of which was called Pixar's Leading Women, and along with her colleague, Nicole Grindle, has started two women's groups at Pixar, Story Artistas and Animation Artistas. It's a forum where women story artists and women animators come together each month to hear notable people working in the field speak. But it's also to just plain support each other. She and I decided we needed to do this because we want a female director at Pixar. The Our directors are homegrown, and we were looking around and realizing, oh wow, at that point we still didn't have any female heads of story or animation supervisors, not because they were being suppressed, but just because it's, it's been a small group and we needed to just foster that energy. I feel lucky that I met Ann Bogart. You know, it was in what, 1986 um, that there was a successful, mature woman who took an interest in me and mentored me and challenged me and encouraged me to go for it. You know, it was a delayed reaction before I actually realized that version of the dream, but now I'm at a senior executive level. I feel like I need to give back. We'd like to thank Mary Coleman for taking the time to sit down and talk with us. This episode was produced by us, Sarah Ginsberg, and Elaine Sheldon, and sound design is by Billy Wurasnik. The music you heard in today's episode is by Pearl and the Beard, a broken bass band of three. Jeremy Lloyd Styles on guitar, Jocelyn McKenzie on percussion, and Emily Hope Price, who is this episode's featured music maker, plays the cello. I don't know if they fit a genre, Jeremy calls it folk mixtape, but what I do know is they all write, sing, and play their big beating hearts out. I'm sure you noticed.
Emily, who comes from Utah, started playing the cello in fourth grade. She hasn't stopped since. I love classical music. I love playing it. I love performing it. There's something I love about it, but there's something even more tempting about creating your own musical children and pushing them out into the world. Some people, you know, some people can dive into something and feel so carefree and just feel like, oh, I don't care if I mess up. I don't care what this is. This, this is what I'm doing right now. I wasn't like that. I was really shy and secretive. And I'm still kind of shy and secretive in that way. Like, I, I just want to learn things on my own time. Performance, uh, it became very early on for me a way of releasing that pressure uh, and li- almost literal pressure. Like, it feels like a rodeo, a cowboy <laughs> on, on a bucking bronco. It feels like that. Like, I feel like that animal sitting there in that cage just waiting, just with this pressure, and this is growing and growing and growing. You're waiting and you're waiting, and then you get on stage, and it's like explosion. That specific feeling that I experience is what makes performance so necessary because... It is that release. It is that relief. Prepare yourselves. Grab a pen and paper. Open up your ears. This is the Emily Hope Price Manifesto. If I could say anything to a young musician, it would be to just create. Just create. Keep Just keep creating one thing after another. Don't, don't stop. Just keep going. Just write, 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 and play and play and play anything. If you don't want to practice, if you don't want to play, do something creative. Create every day. It doesn't matter. People's souls need to produce. This is purely coming from a place of having experience of feeling trapped by my own perfectionism, actually stifling my own creativity because there was so much judgment and there was so much criticism. Um, upon myself and not letting my inner intelligence breathe and, and just live and make mistakes. Most, most of the time, most of the things I thought were mistakes ended up being the best things I've done. Be sure to mark down July 21st on your desk calendar. That's when Pearl and the Beard drops Beast, their brand new album. Visit our website, shedoespodcast.com slash music to find out more about Emily and the band. Thanks to Filmmaker Magazine, who ran five takeaways with Mary Coleman this week. Visit FilmmakerMagazine.com to read those. And we'd also like to thank and welcome Elijah Case, our shiny new She Does production accomplice. She works for DER, Documentary Educational Resources, but I actually met her on the dance floor. She's pretty good at that. And once again, our exciting news this week is that we are now part of Slate's Panoply Network. And you know, we really have you guys to thank for that, for listening, for reviewing, for rating, for sharing. It was really you that brought us to Slate's attention. So thank you for listening to She Does.